Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you again and again and again for your word and its truth. And Lord, the fact that it is sufficient and reliable and sustainable and understandable, Lord, that we can read your word and walk away hearing and learning truth. I thank you genuinely from the bottom of my heart for that reality. I thank you, God, as well for allowing us to see the truth and not to be deceived. We credit you for that. And I thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so I'm going to go through these arguments as quickly as possible. We're not going to say names. This is a person in our community who was a pastor at our church. You guys know that. Um, We're getting to the arguments. So his third argument, celibacy is not a gift. Celibacy is a gift, not a mandate. Uh, The Bible honors celibacy as a worthy calling, but it also makes clear that celibacy is a gift that not all have, and he gives two passages of scripture. And then this final sentence, I'm going to come back to that final sentence in a minute. Let's just look at the first part. Um, the two passages that he shares, the first one, 1 Corinthians 7, 7-9. Does anybody know the context? If you go, I don't know the context. Um, this... We, we don't have a priority over handling the scriptures. I think you guys all have Bibles. Why don't you pop your Bibles open and see what the context is without me just telling you that, right? We're not priests, Roman Catholic priests that hold on to it and keep it in a different language so only we can hear it and read it. It's open for all of you. What is the context of 1 Corinthians 7? Some of you already know. Marriage. So he's talking about marriage and there's is this the only two verses, three verses he talks about it in this section? There's a whole bunch about marriage. What are some other topics he brings up in here? Hmm? Divorce. Divorce. Immorality. Immorality. A whole bunch of things, right? All related to this concept of marriage. He, he makes this comment. Um, I wish that all were as I myself am, which that's a very interesting topic right there. What what does he mean? He's clearly talking about being unmarried. But I think there's other things that could be implied there. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Um... Many a young man has used this scripture in trying to talk his wife into getting married earlier. (laughs) Right? Um, Is there anything in this particular passage about homosexuality or homosexual desires or anything? Is this talking about that at all? No. I would actually be curious to see what they think about the first few verses there talking about each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband and things like that. Like, I would just... Are they, would, they, would they say it doesn't actually mean that, or would they just pretend it's not there? It's pretty clear at the beginning of that chapter yeah. about sexual relations, a man with a woman. In fact, let me just say, one of the things that even adds to that is, we've talked about this before, in the Greek, the word that's translated husband is the same word as translated man. We translate a husband versus man because of the context. We must be talking about husbands here, not just men. And the word that's translated wife is the word woman. Am I right on this? Yeah. Okay, so it's very clear, right? <laughs> check. Check. Am I right? Yeah, okay. Um, fact check. Okay. 
so it's very clear that, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time on some of these because it's so obvious here what's being, the, the, just the, the taking it out of context of what's being said, okay? Uh, this is clearly, in fact, with just a little bit of looking, going back to the beginning of the chapter, I mean, it's clearly, to, to try to use that to support, uh, which, by the way, let me go back to his argument for a second. Um, I would never say it was a mandate. In fact, there's some passages of Scripture that Paul talks about. Um, I think it's in Timothy where he says, and some people are commanding things that God hasn't commanded, like not marrying. Okay? And so, that, that I mean, he's off on his entire argument right off at the beginning. Yes? I think you could entertain some hyperbole, too. And you could say, it says... Uh, Every man after his manner. For I would that mm. all men were even as myself, but every man hath his proper gift to God, one after his manner. He, you could entertain some hyperbole and say, my manner is a serial killer. <laughs> so, I, you know, God gave me permission to do it because that's how I feel like I should be, and I'm going to go ahead and do it. But clearly we know, I think even this pastor would agree, doesn't fall into that. It's not okay. Serial killer. Yeah. I will say, though, I have read a lot of biblically-based books on this topic, mm -hmm. and there are several that seem to resign the same-sex attracted person to celibacy. We do have one book that I've recommended that he kind of goes that way. And, yeah, so it's not, he's not pulling this out of his butt, so to speak, sorry. No, I no. Mean, there are a lot of righteous men of God that have, and women that have written books that have said, I've chosen to be celibate because of my same-sex attraction. Sure. You should, too. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. First, yeah. I can see that they could take out a context would be, I wish that all of you were as I am, that each of you has your own gift from God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and which is kind of what John was talking about. What, I mean, yeah, if you if you try to make that mean one, you got yours, and well, if it means that, and I would have said ten years ago in an argument with, and I actually did this in an argument with someone who claimed to be a Christian was was claiming something along this lines that well, what about somebody that's inclined? I'd say, well, what about the person that would say they're inclined towards children? Yeah. We'd be all for celibacy for that person. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, don't, don't, right? Don't but, but frankly, right now, now you, you're starting to get rumors of that in the news and other things where people are actually starting to say, well, uh, and I'm like, that is sick. Um, so lots, lots of stuff here, again, because I don't want to ramble because I listen to myself. I'm going to move on and say that there's a lot, but I think it's pretty obvious. Let me hit this next one here. Uh, Matthew 19, I, I actually added a little bit of the context because he only had the one verse, I think. I think he just had Matthew uh, 19:11 referenced. So I went ahead and put some of the context. He says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying. What saying? Not, not their saying, but what saying? What about divorce, right? Um, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs 
who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made them who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Okay, the, the Greek word for eunuch is eunuch. Um, it, it, it means bedkeeper. Uh, normally, a eunuch was someone who was put over the king's uh, harem, right? All the, the women. Sometimes, but not all the time, sometimes a eunuch had been castrated. But it doesn't have to mean that. In fact, quite often, it, in fact, in the context here, this is the only, there's only two places in the New Testament where this word is used. In Matthew right here, and then in Acts with the Ethiopian eunuch. There's only two places in the New Testament where that word is used. But it doesn't have to mean some physical aspect of them, like castration. Could it have meant that? Yeah. Did it mean that? Not always. In fact, some people chose that, and that was another word that could be someone who chose celibacy. In fact, Thayer's definition um, could mean one naturally incapacitated for marriage or having children, or one who voluntarily abstains from marriage. So the Greek word could mean just one who abstains from marriage as well. Um, it's not a common used word in the New Testament. Again, does anything in here have to do with um, homosexuality? Is this in that context at all? Does that have anything to do with what he's talking about? No. no I would say, though, that the absence of commentary on it doesn't allow for it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not, not talking about it isn't permission to do it. Right. Now, I want to go back to his argument because... Yeah. He, he says then, and, and that's the thing, Jesus is saying some, this isn't for everybody. To, to abstain from marriage your whole life is not for everybody. Some, in fact, Paul talks about a very similar thing, right? But listen to, listen to this last part. There's a, there's a false view that is assumed in his next statement. In fact, a couple. Requiring that all gay Christians remain celibate for life because of their sexual orientation is at odds with the Bible's teachings on celibacy. Now, what's, what's a false assumption that's being made in that statement? Yeah. That, that... Yeah, requiring all... It's just that whole first phrase there is like... It's, it's assuming that we think that or assuming that we would say certain things like that. Like, mm-hmm no basis at all he didn't what it, the verses he quoted have nothing to even do with that yeah it's just it's all just mixed up and he's trying to prove some point that doesn't even have anything to do with his broader argument as a whole no like this isn't even anything to do with all the other comments like I, it's just messed up it is from his point of view he's already landed the argument that uh being homosexual is okay yeah. 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 Gay Christians. Gay Christians. Can I play so, the Josiah Yeah, go ahead. No, you're not on. You're not on. I'll just talk real loud. Yeah, in fact, uh, I was thinking, I forgot to say this, but we should, when people are talking, that was the other thing I noticed when in the recording, you can't hear other people's comments. And so. That's probably. Well, not necessarily. Check. Well, you can still hear them if you turn them up real loud. Just, just so representing what this person is saying here, he's not saying 
ultimately his point isn't about homosexuality though here. He's talking about celibacy because his argument is the Bible says that celibacy is a gift. And if you don't have that gift, then how cruel it would be for God to say no to you. Mm. It's not so much the homosexuality thing. He, he brings that in, but he's basing his argument on this argument about celibacy. He says celibacy is a gift, not a mandate. That's his point right there. And then he says these two verses prove that point. Well, what Matt just showed you is, no, that's wrong. <laughs> in mm -hmm. fact, when you hear that somebody says that celibacy is a gift, that is not at all what the Bible is teaching about celibacy. All the Bible is teaching about celibacy is that it, at some times, at some points in life, is a good thing. That's all he's saying. And mm -hmm. I, I've wrestled with that and couldn't figure that out because a lot of teachers say this, that it's a calling or a gift. The Bible does not teach that. And this guy in this book really helps clearly lay that out, that all the Bible is teaching when it talks about celibacy is that at that point, it's a good thing for you. He's not saying it's a gift. God's saying at that thing, at that point in your life, it's a good thing. But, so that, that's the argument being made here. And you have to show, first of all, that the first point's wrong. If the first point's wrong, then your second sentence can't be true because the first point's wrong. You see what I'm saying? Like, as soon as you show that first line's false, because you pointed out first, he used these two verses, like, no, that's not what it teaches, then the whole second sentence makes no sense because you've already proved it wrong. Because you can't, his second sentence is based on his first sentence. You get that? Like, it doesn't make any sense to say the second thing if your first thing's wrong. And that's, that's super important because I think the celibacy thing for single people is a really hard thing to wrestle with. And I highly recommend this book. I don't know if you're planning on talking about this guy's book a little bit later or not, but I, read I saw a picture of him in there mm. with uh, Rosaria. But let's oh. move on. Well, yes. In fact, uh, I want to say, especially that, that second part right there, um, because there's... I'm going to say something that's actually a little bit more controversial. Somebody's, in, in fact, Charity mentioned this a moment ago, there's some, some Christian books where they, in fact, one that we have here, I think is a great book. Yeah, Sam Albury's is God Anti-Gay. I, I really like the book. I think it's a great book, but he doesn't go far enough. He, he doesn't give hope. Yeah, he, he acts like... A sense of hopelessness, like yeah. the, the average same-sex attracted person is like, well... Oh, well... Now, the thing that I like, can I just say the thing that I like about his book is that he's writing from experience, and one of the things that is interesting to me is that he ultimately says, I'm going to do what God commands regardless of how I feel. That's the thing I like about it, okay? And so if you have somebody that doesn't believe that that can change, that's an interesting starting point to look at because he, he lays out a, a precedent of ultimately I have to do what God says regardless of what I feel. But here's the thing. Uh, in, sorry, geometry, uh, in logic, one of the ways to disprove a statement is by a counterexample. Yeah. A counterexample, I mean, you could say, somebody says, here's something that's always true. How many examples do you need to prove that that's, that statement's not true? One. You just need one. If there's one case where that doesn't happen, you have to go, okay, that something's wrong with the theory. All you need is one. I'm going to give you two. 
first one is Jackie Hill Perry. Jackie Hill Perry was a, or is a, or no, she was a lesbian, living a lesbian lifestyle, practicing in a relationship. She was a rapper. I, I haven't read the whole book. I know you've read it. It's super good. Yeah, I, it, it's a good book, too. When, when Charity was reading it, she just kept going, this is so good. So I, that usually means it's a pretty good book. Um, it's raw. I mean, it's very raw. Yeah. It should, you know, it, it, if it goes into the hands of somebody, it's pretty raw. Yeah. She's real honest. Um, you ready for the counterexample? There she is with her husband and her four children now. And it's not forced, according to her. This is not... God changed her desires. That's, I'm sorry. That's the promise we stand on. No. Okay. That's the issue I have with Alberry's book. I mm -hmm. do appreciate his stick to itiveness. We don't live by feelings, we live by principles. But, I mean, you're not dealing with a very principle centered world when you're talking about this. It's all about feelings, which is sad. It shouldn't be that way. But to delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of the heart. We've gotten that verse, if I'm right, we've gotten that verse wrong because we think if we delight in God, He gives us what we want. But he actually, in, when we delight in him, he inputs his desires into our hearts. And we begin to want what he wants. And so what I love about this book is that Jackie's like, there's deliverance from wrong desires mm -hmm. when we delight. There's deliverance. And I love that. That was so good. So I'm, I'm sorry, but... No. Super good book. It's, if, you, yeah. if you want to, I mean, if you really want to learn more about especially helping somebody or working with somebody or talking to somebody or understanding. This is a, this is a great one. The next one, I want to read to you um, example number two, second counterexample. Um, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. I'm going to actually going to read to you the description of this lady, Rosaria Butterfield, from Wikipedia. So not, not her version or a Christian's version, but the Wikipedia version of this person. Um, it says, growing up, Butterfield attended predominantly liberal Catholic schools. She is most widely known for her autobiography, this one right here, in which she details her transformation from a postmodernist into a Bible-believing Christian. For nearly a decade, she lived as an openly lesbian activist. So not just the lifestyle. She was an activist. Okay? While researching the religious right and their political hatred against the queer community, so she was on that side, writing stuff, studying that. She was at a university where all, I mean, this is what it was. She was a professor of queer theory. Yeah. It was her department. Yeah, I think it's, she wrote an article criticizing the evangelical organization Promise Keepers. Ken Smith, there's this guy named Ken Smith, who was a pastor at the time, a Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church, wrote to her regarding the article. So she wrote this article, he wrote to her, this is, this is the best part of the story, and invited her to dinner. At his house. At his house. Her subsequent friendship with the Smiths, him and his, his wife, led to her reevaluation of her presuppositions. Two years later, Butterfield converted to evangelical Christianity. Following her conversion, she developed a ministry to college students. She now frequently speaks at churches, etc., etc., etc. She lives in Durham, North Carolina now with her husband. That's, that's not her husband. Oh, it's not? That's the author of this book. Oh. That's Christian. Man, I couldn't find her here. I kept looking for pictures like... She's married and has children. Yeah, she is married and has yeah. children. Sorry, not her husband. 
I okay. couldn't tell. So I'll add. She did have a lot of personal though. pictures. You got a third one? Okay. Yeah. That guy right there on the screen. Yeah. Okay. So Christopher Yuan was a uh, he was a, a, a dental major at the dental school in Louisville. Flaming, flaming gay. <laughs> Into the drug scene. Quit school and moved down to Atlanta and was really into the drug scene and gets arrested and he's in jail. Meanwhile, during all this going on, he had come out to his Asian parents and his mom and dad were not believers. But in an Asian culture, there's all this shame and they're like wanting to ostracize him, but his mom didn't know what to do with this. She ends up coming to the Lord and starts praying for him. Okay, now go back to when he's in jail. She'd been praying for him for a couple of years. He sees a scripture on the wall and, and starts reading that. And God brings him to salvation. Hmm. He ends up going to Bible college, ends up going to seminary, ends up getting a doctor degree. He teaches at Moody Bible Institute now. Um, and like these books that we've we're recommending so far, except for this little one, they're all by people that God has changed their desires. Now, he's not married. He's still single. But he, he talks so well in this book that I think it's, it's really helpful for us. So that's three examples to prove the argument wrong. So I, I was just joking. I had him up there as a third example on purpose. <laughs> uh, sure. Um, I know that uh, in regards to her, then I'll take your comment. In regards to her, I know that when in her book, we were listening to the audio book, I remember this part, it was a long process, but one of the things that she had to face was, okay, if I become a Christian, it, th it's about this too. And it was, she knew it was going to affect her life. She was in a relationship. It's going to affect that. So her housing... <laughs> Her job, if she's the professor of queer theory, what's that mean about your job? As suddenly you, right? It, and it did. It affected everything that she did it. Before John, your comment. Yeah. Uh, of all the examples, she's my favorite. The reason the letter from Ken Smith was so key for her is because she had been receiving all kinds of letters from that newspaper article that were venomous hatred from so-called Christians. They were condemning her. They were just awful, awful mean. And she gets this weird letter from him that's so kind and invites her to dinner at their house. Mm -hmm. And then they don't even discuss that. They just, he prays, and she's astounded by his prayer at the meal mm -hmm. and the relationship that he developed. Rosario's second book, this book here that you see on the screen is real thin. It's just autobiographical. It's her story. Her second book, Openness Unhindered, really explains in detail and really starts to show that community and opening up your heart, your, your home for fellowship is one of the key ways to minister to your, the people around you. But anyway, John. I was just going to say that we almost missed a key part, which was the dinner invitation. And um, mm -hmm. Melissa and I met in art school, and so we were like, I, I didn't have any same-sex attractions, but I was in a classroom that was better than 50%, I'm sure, every day of my life. And uh, was really impressed 
that the gay community was the kind of warm and fuzzy and inviting that the evangelical Christian community wishes it could be. And there's one good way to get on TV, and it's to put a banner out there in front of some place where you want to be seen. But there's one good way to talk to somebody, and inviting them over for dinner, the gay community really responds to that. And that's, uh, it's so vital that we just love. It doesn't mean that we let go of our um, uh, our connections, our convictions, yeah. But but that we love nonetheless. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I think what Jerry was saying is, you know, no matter what we are doing in our lives, um, <laughs> no matter what we're doing in our lives, be it um, you know addiction be it, um, you know, homosexuality, um, you know, whatever it is, adultery, there's always hope, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's the thing, like, what he was saying is, you know, we don't condone what they're doing, but we love them, Mm -hmm. and I think that we give them hope, Um, and hope is what sometimes that string is what just holds us, you know, and... um, so yeah, so I think that's really important. Um, like Charity said, just um, mm-hmm. we are their hope, yes. you know. So um, yeah. Yeah. All right. So so that I don't ramble, I'm going to keep moving. Any other things about this? Obviously, there's lots of opportunity for discussion on this, especially when we get to the answering of the questions that we haven't gotten to. A lot of the questions have to do with how do we minister and how do we reach out. That book is a great example of exactly what all you guys are saying, so I'm not going to repeat all of that. I want to move to the next uh, comment that he has. The next couple comments, I'm going to be honest with you right now before I go into them. I don't have a ton, and so you might have some more than I do. I don't have a ton of commentary on these things. Uh, Let's look at this next one here. Gender complementarity, that's talking about You've got a man and a woman, and they complement each other. They're not identical. Okay? Are, are men and women equal before God? Yes. Are they exactly the same? No. Okay? Gender complementarity is a broad category, not a universally normative biblical teaching. Before I read the rest, I just want to say, reading this, reading this, it, it sounds like gibberish to me. I'm not trying to be mean to this individual. It, it's just a bunch of gibberish. In fact, in my notes I wrote, hogwash is what I wrote. It's just like, what do you, let me just read it. Gender complementary can refer to a variety of understandings of men and women complement one another in ways that many non-affirming Christians believe are necessary for romantic relationships to be moral. For example, gender hierarchy, procreative capacity, anatomical complementarity. Uh, let's just be honest. We just did the creation story. God created man. And so there's nobody that's suited to him. When he did, he put the man, not because he was better or anything else, but because of role of creation, in order of creation, he says, you're the head of this woman, Right? Hierarchy. There is a hierarchy in marriage. Procreative capacity. Yes. For 
first marriage. I mean, God, God blessed them and sent them out. That was the marriage. He blessed them. As we do at the end of a marriage. Blessed. Go. What does he say? Be what? Be fruitful and multiply. So procreative capacity that's written right into our existence story. Okay? Anatomical complementarity. There was nobody suited to him. And since we don't have any tiny, tiny ones in here. Right? Okay. Uh, the Bible does not teach any particular understanding of gender combat is universal and exclusive normative. That is just, it's just ridiculous nonsense. Hence my, yeah. While she's waiting to speak, First oh. Corinthians 11.3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. I'm pretty sure the Bible was making a very universal and exclusively normative statement right there. Yeah. I mean, how can you, like, uh, that's a universal statement. Like, it's not saying sometimes for some people that the husband's the head. It doesn't say it that way, does it? It just says, it lays it out and doesn't make any apology for it. Wife. Well, there's also, I mean, there's a couple of points there. First, I feel like when you start having to get really flowery and intense with your language, you're usually trying to obscure something by sounding so smart nobody will question you. So that's my first clue, like, hmm, what's going on here? But second, you know, the other thing I was pointing out is how this subtle hijacking of the term affirming, that you, that there's only one way to be affirming, and that's in this relation to homosexuality. So that if I'm affirming the biblical, <coughs> biblical pattern, that's not affirming. <laughs> you know, just, a, just a, the, the mere inserting of... I mean, even that is its own fallacy to, to, to hijack a word, to make it mean this, to automatically shade those who would be in disagreement by calling them non-affirming. You know, that, that, this, this whole idea that a gender-affirming gender surgery, how many other surgeries do we refer to as affirming? I mean, I'm uh, my liver transplant affirming by chance? Any anything? No, no. But the, just the, the the mere just a, a slight capture of that word instantly shades the conversation in a different direction. See, I don't even need to ramble, do I? So I think. Paul, your, your verse that you mentioned was in New Testament, correct? Yeah. Well, if you go back to Leviticus 18, there's like a whole long list of sexual deviance that is prohibited. Mm -hmm. And so you can't just say that there's, there's no specific particular. God is very particular to the point where he lays out lots and lots and lots of verses about what he does not accept. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that that's just dishonesty and biblical illiteracy at its best. Yeah. Which is the right answer for the next comment too. Yeah. Biblical illiteracy. So can I... Yeah. One thing that he's doing here is, is um, I don't think we've really caught on to the fact that there's two kinds of homosexuals here. One who believes themselves to be Christian and one who does not. 
either or. He's, he's kind of fighting for the rights of both, it seems, so I'm, I'll speak on both. Mm -hmm. If you're a Christian, you get the blueprints, blueprints for your life in Scripture. And, and if you're a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, and, and biblically literate, it's not hard to believe that what's written in Genesis is not only acceptable, but it's there, right? It's important. Um, if you're not a Christian, I don't know what else there is. I guess most of the world outside of Christendom, and, and you think atheist, is evolutionist. And the idea, that's why I like that he talks about procreation, because the idea that anybody could do anything that doesn't lead to procreation means that they're making a decision against evolutionary principles and laws. They're, they're actually deciding to be the weaker um, construct. That, am I making sense? Mm -hmm. that, that they're making a decision to snuff themselves out of existence. <laughs> and so neither one of them work very well, is what mm -hmm. I'm driving at. Survival of the fittest, yes, is what my wife says. Um, lot, a lot could be talked about this. In fact, th this would open up a whole other conversation about in, in theological circles, there's complementarianism and there's, there's other views of this. I don't want to get into all that today other than just addressing the part that he brings up. A lot more could be said, but I think we're all agreeing that's hogwash. Um, the next one, comment number five. Um, oh. The arc of scripture points toward inclusion, not exclusion. Okay, before I even go any further, <laughs> any comments on, don't laugh, we got five hands up. I was going to say, I got five Yeah, you got the microphone already, so you get to talk first. <laughs> um, I think that when Christ says that there is a narrow gate, and I'm going, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many go there, and narrow is the gate that leads to life, is very counter to that statement. Yeah. It might not be appropriate, but I'm going to quote Mark Twain. <laughs> There's the famous quote, it's not what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what that you know for sure that just ain't so. Mm. And this is a key example of that, of misreading scripture in order to make what you want it to say be partially relevant. I mean, because you can't even... You can't even fully read scripture to go there, but you deluded yourself at some point to continue on this trajectory, to continue on this argumentation. You have to have lied to yourself or you have to firmly believe something that's com completely an error. Mm -hmm. And it gets you into so much trouble because now he's gone down this road, which is so obviously, like what she just said, it's so obviously just anti scripture yeah so is there are there things in scripture that do speak towards including no, those who would have normally been included in god's kingdom right today's After, passage today my passage i'm looking at today and, and luke we've had some previously in luke uh, there there's clearly times where jesus says they're in you're out <laughs> but that they're in and the year out 
Well, first of all, there's the, there's the year out. Uh, one of the passages I quote today comes from a few chapters ago in Luke where Jesus says, Sit, sitting at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be many foreigners. He's talking about Samaritans specifically, but outside. He says, but, but while the sons of Abraham will be cast into outer darkness. And so... It, it, it's you guys are all right. You're saying, and I, so I don't want, want to just re- keep repeating it. But he's he's to to try to summarize scripture, the arc of scripture, pointing towards inclusion, not exclusion, is is com- I think completely missing what the arc of scripture is about. Yeah. I I, I just quick side note here. I I a lot of us knew this person. Yes. And it's it's frustrating because this is not the same person that I knew. It is mm-hmm. from from the outside, and, right. and I think it's just important reading this to remember to guard your heart, not just from these types mm. of beliefs, but from all sinful thought. Because mm. it's so clear. The more comments we look at, it's so clear that this was not a. I don't even know how to say this. It's. It's, it's Christianity giving in to the world plain as day mm-hmm. and trying to fit a narrative to what the world is saying. And it's just, it's, it's sad, honestly. And it's, I think for me it's, it's affirming, as he would like to say, of <laughs> the belief in my own mind that I need to have fellowship first and foremost with Christians, with mm-hmm. people in the church, with Jesus. Because mm-hmm. when we have greater fellowship with people outside of the church, this is what happens. Excellent point. Can I piggyback off of that? Because sure. when we were down, when we were at, sitting on the beach up in Michigan and talking, I agree with Samuel. This has really rattled me. For those of, I mean, because for a lot of the newbies, this is just a, these are just people that we're talking about. But for some of us have been all, I mean, these are, these are people that we served with that we studied scripture with. And I guess my question, and I know you tried to answer this for me because I can set all of this aside, but what, what alarms me is that I'm a simple girl, okay? I'm not a Bible scholar. I study the word. These are, this, these are people that went to Bible college, like the colleges we would all send our kids to, okay? I mean, what's how does this happen? It, it, because you're right. Like we, we're some of us are simpletons. So when he says the first line, he says, "There we go." Huh? This is so simple. You know, the narrow gate, the the sheep and the goats. The fact that there's going to be a remnant at the end insinuates that we're not all going to be included. My question is just: Is this just what does he do with that? How do you? What do you do with that when you're in that mindset and you're promoting this? What is ha- what's happening? So I'd like to is answer. Is it deception or I'd like are you to just answer ignoring? The answer, part of the answer that I gave you, but before I do, two comments. One, we're close to the end of our time. We have like two minutes here. Um, so John had his hand up. Well, I want you to say what you want to say, and I'm going to answer part of that. But then this is obviously we're going to have to pick up next week, and then if. Yeah, yeah. We didn't get as far as I tried. So really quickly, he's, he's talking about the Really quickly, he's talking about the arc of scripture as though he's, he's uh, 
receiving the full counsel of God. It's, it's sort of like, oh, look, the, the whole Bible's in here. But he does this thing where he says, um, let's talk about a precedent of one person. Not only that, if I applied that, then I could say there was a part of the Bible where a donkey talks. So we now have a, bref- a precedent that donkeys should vote. <laughs> and and I might, maybe I'm right, but I'm sure a lot of people would argue with me, minimum. It just doesn't stand on its own two feet. It's so close-minded. <laughs> uh, so... Poor donkeys. Hashtag save the donkeys. So, uh, I'm about... We're, since we're about out of time, I did... <laughs> Hashtag donkey pride. Is that what... It's kind of like the end of Jonah. What about the cows? What about the donkeys? Um... Simple answer, and then we, we need to be done. Um, I, I know this. Part, part of the question is, how could somebody that's knowledgeable and have a brain come to such a radically different conclusion? That's, that's the, at the heart of the question. One of the answers, I think there's two parts to the answer. This is just me thinking. One part of that answer is has to do with just the thinking piece. If you start off with some wrong assumptions, it can lead you to very different conclusions. You can be super smart. Examples are, are a lot of our atheists are Stephen Hawking. I mean, they have some, the, the, their basic assumptions are off. Are they super smart? Yeah, but if you, if you, everybody has some basic assumptions that they have to say, I can't prove this 100%, but there's some basic assumptions. And if your basic assumptions are off, you often lead to different conclusions. It, so it's not just intelligence, uh, especially with the scripture, because one of the key pieces of scripture that Christians have believed for thousands of years is that it is understandable to everyone. This is why people fought and died to get it into the language of the common people. Um, But that's a whole other thing. The second piece is you can't help but take a step back and look at this and go there's something unnatural about somebody shifting. Another word for unnatural? Supernatural. Are there, does the Bible say that there are beings in this world that operate in the sphere of spirit, which would include also, I think, thought and ideas? Yeah. There, there must be, I think, that explanation is also relevant. And which goes back to what Samuel said, guard your heart because the, the, the devil walks around like a, a, a roaring lion seeking anybody that he can devour. That's why the Bible is so full of warnings about these exact things of being careful about who you listen to and what you listen to. Lies have power. Right? Um, I know we got to be done. Just one more comment. Yeah. I, I think there's a danger in intellectualism. I mean... I have a library that has thousands of books, literally, but there's a danger in that, in, in thinking 
these, the more you learn and all these smart people around you and, and going, and, and knowledge puffeth up, is what the King James says. It's, it, you, when I went to seminary, so many people started reading all these other things and they sound so smart. They, but they, they lose the simple message of the gospel. One of the biggest ways that, that Satan will distract you is to make you think you need to move on from the gospel. Like there's so many other things I need to learn. But if it comes back to the fact that I'm a sinner, I need a savior, and Jesus is good, the Bible tells me so. Simple faith is really what he's asking for. And I'm not saying that we that we shouldn't press on to learn. I'm not saying that learning is bad. Obviously, I wouldn't try to do all that. But simple faith in the gospel, and that God is good and Jesus loves me, is Satan wants you to move on. He wants to move on from that. Evidence that he's not focused on the gospel anymore is that first sentence. Yeah. Because the arc of Scripture is about, it all points to Jesus as the Savior of humanity. Not... One way, right through him, and he saves. It's it's not just a, a message of social justice and good things for people and loving, right? Those are those are offshoots of it. But Solomon in the Psalms and in, in Ecclesiastes says that there's so much learning you can do, and it's all vanity. And he gets the end and says, "This serve the Lord, fear of Him." Mm-hmm. We pray real quick. God, we ask for wisdom. Help us to stay in the straight and narrow. Help us not to veer to the left or right. By Your grace, that's the only way. In Jesus' name, Amen.